So welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast. We are here to discuss the biggest issues and trends faced by the businesses and the people who we work with. My name is Philip Souter. I'm our head of UK public policy. And today I'm talking to Dan Needle, who is the partner leading our nationalisation project um, in relation to the Labour Party. And he is an expert in international trade law and EU law. Um, so, Dan, uh, there's not much going on politically, is there? You're a funny man, Philip. There, there's lots going on politically. Clients, businesses, investors are focused on politics more than I think they ever have been in my professional lifetime, because the last few years have been an object lesson in the power of politics to affect business, which in the UK for the 20 or so years before that, it kind of didn't. Governments changed, taxes went up a bit, taxes went down again, but the fundamental business and economic landscape was kind of unchanged. People have been talking about political risk in a way over the last sort of couple of years that that's just not been the case because it's just because the landscape has changed so radically and the parties are so polarised at the moment in a way that they just haven't been. That consensus has really broken down, hasn't yes, it? Yes, but Brexit and Trump have illustrated the power of political risk and now people look the future. They look at the political risks that are over the horizon and perhaps coming closer. And one of those is the Labour Party and the prospect of the British Labour Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn, forming a government when it has a number of policies which represent a seismic change in the country's business and economic landscape. Well, the Fixed Term Parliament Act says that the next general election in the UK is scheduled for the 5th of May 2022. So... We could even ask ourselves, well, why are we even having this conversation if, if that's how far the election is going to be away? There are clearly a number of scenarios where we have an election before 2022, whether that is driven by Parliament not much liking a new Conservative Party leader, whether it's driven by Brexit, whether it's driven by some other factor we don't even know about now. But either way, there are very few people who are willing to bet their business on there not being an election before 2022. Well, it's good to know that this isn't a pointless conversation because this could actually happen. It could happen this year. It could happen early next year. And I suppose that's why we need to have a good understanding of what a Labour-led government might do and what their priorities are, what order that they would do things in um, and, and how that would impact businesses across the UK and, and I suppose as well internationally. Now, it's a radical and comprehensive agenda. Um, what what are the sort of the main things that they want to achieve at a very high level? Crikey, there, there, there's quite a lot. The At a fundamental level, they want to reshape the relationship between the state, the public and business. And many of the business proposals are linked in with that. So, for example, nationalisation which we should talk about in more detail in a bit, but nationalisation of at least four or five major sectors of the economy, increase in the national minimum wage, ban on zero-hour contracts, many changes to personal taxation, many changes to corporate taxation, compulsory acquisition of 10% of the shares in all large companies, collective bargaining across sectors, Bank of England reforms, creation of a national investment bank, changes to trade policy, PFI reform, workers on boards really quite a lot now that is a that is an incredibly comprehensive and complicated 
legislative program that would take years to implement um, is one of the reasons why we're talking about nationalization in more detail today the fact that of all of those things nationalization is really very much at the top of their agenda and one of the first things that they want to get cracking with if they find themselves in government i think that's right that nationalization has a powerful emotional pull for many on the left of the labor party partly that's because there's a feeling that these industries simply should be owned by the public and i think that's particularly strong for water partly it's a reaction against the privatizations by the conservative government of the 80s and a little bit in the 90s in the case of water the privatization of water was seen as particularly illegitimate because it was in the waning years of that conservative administration so th these create a powerful desire to nationalize water and to do it soon so political parties will traditionally say all sorts of things to get elected but then reality bites and their program might change in government so i suppose the question is, do you think they really mean it? Are they going to follow through? There is no doubt in my mind that John MacDonald means it. He runs interview with the Times where he says that he, he wants to foment the decline of capitalism. State ownership is important to him. This is central to his politics. Yes, he means it. People said about Trump, you should take him seriously, but not literally. With MacDonald, you should take him seriously and you should take him literally. If they are able to proceed with the nationalisation of water in the first year or so of a Labour government, they will do it. So, as you said, nationalisation is right at the top of their agenda. It's getting a huge amount of press coverage. A lot of businesses would be affected. What have they said exactly about nationalisation? What do they want to nationalise? So, water, I think, remains the priority. Top of the list. Probably number two, the energy sector. What do we mean by that? We mean energy networks and distributions. So the, the national grid and the various distribution companies. That was it for energy until this week when Unison, a trade union very close to the Labour leadership, put out a paper proposing the nationalisation of the big six energy supply companies, the retail side of energy. And assuming that is taken up, which seems likely, that's a fairly comprehensive nationalisation of essentially everything in the energy sector except generation. So water, energy, what else? The Royal Mail, that's reversing a recent privatisation. Rail companies, a bit different because you don't necessarily need a nationalisation per se. You can wait for the franchises to run off and, and then simply run the businesses at a state-controlled company. And that, that's exactly what Labour's proposing to do. So that's almost a parallel process to the, quote-unquote, real nationalisations of energy, water and the Royal Mail. We also have PFI, which presents a particular problem in that there is not one PFI business you could nationalise. There are 700-odd companies, all with very different contracts, very different capital structures. I'm not sure you can nationalise 700 separate businesses as a practical matter, and Labour currently are not proposing that. It remains to be seen exactly what they'll do. So we, we should probably focus on 
water and energy given that they are the biggest most challenging and it looks like also the, the priority items for an incoming Labour government. Now nationalisation in the UK and more broadly internationally that's not new in the UK it's been done several times already what's so different and novel about what the Labour Party is suggesting I mean how would they how would they go about it? There have been at least 15 waves of nationalisation since the war most of those were nationalisations of necessity, businesses that were in financial difficulty or deeply insolvent. Northern Rock is a paradigm case. Some of them were cases where the sectors themselves were in a poor condition. Immediately post-war, the railways were very much in that category. They'd and been steel, bombed to pieces. Things like that, yeah. Yes, exactly. There have been some nationalisations of businesses that were profitable, but they were much less common. Really, we think the only solid precedent is the nationalisation of the aerospace and shipbuilding industries in the 70s. There you had industries which were in a fairly poor state in the main, but some of the companies in the sector were profitable and compensation therefore had to be paid. So, so that is really the, the precedent we think in terms of the size of the sector, much less than water and energy, but still sizeable. And in terms of the financial position of the businesses, not great, but also not insolvent. I mean, the, those nationalisations in the 1970s, they took a pretty long time, didn't they? It wasn't, it wasn't a process that was completed in a matter of months. Well, that, that, that's absolutely right. Labour went into the February 1974 election and its manifesto said they were going to nationalise aerospace, they were going to nationalise shipbuilding. Then, about six months after winning the election, they came out with a formal proposal. Not much detail, certainly nothing about compensation. And then, about a year after that, so we're now well into 1975, that a bill was presented to Parliament which set out all the details, the entities they wanted to take, and the compensation arrangements. And that was about a 100-page bill, so a reasonable degree of complexity. What happened then is interesting. Labour had a majority... But this was a, an extremely controversial measure. It was controversial because some people believed that some of the things they were nationalising shouldn't be nationalising. There were some ship repair companies in there as well. Some people believed that they were missing one or two companies from the sector and they should be nationalised too. Some people thought the compensation arrangements were unfair. The Speaker of the House of Commons then ruled that because of the slightly pick-and-choose nature of the measure, it was a hybrid bill, meaning it affected private individuals and private companies, as well as the public as a whole. And that ca caused a storm, caused Michael Heseltine to wave the mace, ca caused uh, Neil Kinnock to shout at the Speaker that he was a disgrace, because it meant a delay of another year. And the combination of the controversy, the small majority in the House of Commons, the delay caused by it being a hybrid bill, and strong opposition in the House of Lords meant that it wasn't until 1977 that the bill was actually passed. That's a delay of, of three years. And that was a government that had a majority, and there's no guarantee, um, if there were to be a Labour government, that it would have a, a majority. So in the current climate, it, it, it looks like very large majorities are pretty unlikely but assuming you know we can assume for for the sake of argument that that they they do have a majority now you talked about the hybrid bill in relation to shipbuilding and and 
and, and the other things that were nationalised. Is Do you think that's how a Labour government would have to proceed? They'd have to pass primary legislation and nationalise in, in that way? I think there is a view in some quarters that it's all very simple. You pass a bill, let's call it the John MacDonald Nationalises What He Likes Act, which is a few pages long and empowers ministers or some quango the ability to pick and choose businesses to be nationalised and set the price, and that's it, you're done. And absolutely, Parliament... Sounds very easy. Sounds easy. Good Parli name for the bill as well. Par Parliament could pass an act just like that. But, and this is a huge but, the decisions that are then taken under the delegated authority of that act, whether taken by ministers or, or some other body, they're subject to challenge in mm. the UK courts, and you can be sure they would be. And that best case would slow things down by years. Worst case could either kill some of the nationalisations you want to achieve or mean they proceed on radically different terms. So for essentially this reason, no previous nationalisation has worked that way. Instead, you've had detailed legislation which sets out, and here's a quick attempt to summary, it has to set out the entities you want to nationalise, not the businesses, the specific legal entities, the assets in those entities that you don't want, if you want them to be spun out first. Assets in other entities that you're not acquiring, where you nevertheless want those assets, they need to be spun in first. It needs to specify what happens to the capital structure, loan notes, loans, bonds, derivatives, and so forth. It needs to set up a new framework for owning, operating, governance arrangements, for the business going forward. It needs to have rules for compensation. It needs to watch out for transactions during the time it takes for, for the bill to become law, which can strip value from the business. Because that can take a long time, as we've already established. Yeah, during those three years, shareholders and businesses could do any number of things that strips value from the group. And so you want to reverse that out in the compensation. And all of this is why the 1977 Aircraft and Shipbuilding Act was 100 pages long. Mm. And why for a modern industry like water, which is larger in terms of entities, probably by a factor of 10, much more complex in terms of capital structure, you, you've got to figure it would be significantly longer than 100 pages. But you have to do that or the legal challenges become a very serious problem. Now, you've mentioned compensation a few times and we should get into this because it's one of the most contentious questions in relation to nationalisation. Because we know nationalisation is possible. It can be done. But we also know that the Labour Party is seeking to nationalise vast swathes of the economy, uh, many of which have got very complex uh, debt structures and and quite sort of um, uh, significant um, sort of uh, burdens in, in that respect. Nationalisation would be expensive and paying fair market value would be very expensive. Now, uh, John MacDonald has said that the compensation would be decided by Parliament. That would be a question for Parliament and that's been the line to take and, and um, they have stuck to that line. Why is the compensation point quite so controversial? I think the driver behind it being controversial is the magnitude of the sums in question. So you have, obviously, the equity, the shares. Many of these businesses are highly leveraged. You have a lot of debt, perhaps several times the, the value of the equity. 
that debt often has a make whole provision, which means that if you repay it early, you have to pay a chunk more to compensate for the fact that market interest rates now are in most cases lower than they were when the debt was issued. You have bank debt, you have swap positions, and because of movements in rates, movements in inflation since these finance structures were set up, in many cases, the swap positions are billions out of the money for the company's concerns. That's a liability which government has to pick up. And you have other liabilities too. You have pension provisions, uh, pension deficits. You also have leases in some cases. So all this means that the value of the business overall is much, much larger than was the case in previous nationalizations. You're, you're looking almost certainly at a figure of over 100 billion for water and energy. And that is 10, 20 times the figure for the compensation paid in previous nationalizations. What do you do about that? One view is that you simply issue gilts and government can do so relatively cheaply and you're buying an asset and therefore you do not need to worry unduly about the cost. The other view is to say, you know what, we're not going to pay market value at all. Maybe we'll make adjustments for historic things these businesses did that we didn't like. Maybe we will pay book value. Maybe we'll pay regulatory asset value. Maybe we'll pay even less. After all, Parliament can set the price, says John McDonnell. Now, it's true to say Parliament can set the price. It's a truism, really. The question is, though, what happens next? What happens if you nationalise the water industry for one penny per share? Parliament can do that. The UK courts probably have limited ability to challenge it if it's executed competently, and let's assume it is. However, there are two reasons why that is likely to be not a politically real thing to do. One of them is economic, one is legal. The economic stroke political factor is this, that a significant part of the holdings in the infrastructure sector are held by pension funds, British pension fund investors. The nature of infrastructure assets means predominantly that's pension funds with elderly workers or mainly retired workers, often local authority, often highly trade unionised businesses. How politically real is it for Labour to pay a level of compensation that affects the pensions of ordinary working families? Mm. I would say probably not that much. That's not the legal point, though. The legal point is that, yes, there's pension fund investors, but there's also a number of foreign investors, very heavily in some elements of the water sector. And many foreign investors have protection against nationalisation, against expropriation, under investment treaties, either bilateral investment treaties or the Energy Charter Treaty, perhaps in some cases in, in free trade agreements. So these bilateral investment treaties, they're, they're referred to as BITS, and they were traditionally entered into by Western countries with developing countries to try and avoid or mitigate the risk of uh, the assets owned by businesses uh, in Western countries or developed countries being unfairly expropriated uh, by the developing countries. So uh, are you saying that now that would be the sort of, it, it would flip around and, and that you'd have potential BIT claims against 
the United Kingdom that was seeking to unfairly you know, expropriate at less than market value these, these assets. That's exactly right. These treaties were created because in the 80s and 90s, the feeling went that there wasn't enough investment in the, into the developing world from the UK, from the West, and one reason was fear of expropriation. Let's therefore design an instrument which gives investors really robust protection against expropriation, which guarantees that they'll be treated fairly, not discriminated against, guarantees fair market value compensation, and, and this is critical, says that if you want to bring a claim, you don't have to go to the local courts, you can go to an international tribunal, which the government cannot influence. Nobody thought at the time that the expropriating government would be the UK, but these treaties are symmetrical. It's, it's only fair, they work in both directions. Mm. So, yes, if the British government nationalises without paying fair market value, then investors across the world will have potential claims. And that creates a problem. You almost have a pincer movement. On the one hand, British pensioners, how can you not pay them fair market value? On the other hand, international investors will often have the ability to force fair market value compensation. So are you saying that an international investor would have a better uh, recourse in international law to, to challenging the expropriation than a solely UK-based pension fund? Correct. Politics aside, you could give that British pension fund no compensation and they would have a hard job challenging that in domestic courts. A Chinese investor making a claim under the UK-China Bilateral Investment Treaty would have much better prospects of getting full fair market value compensation. That, that, that's the legal position, but... That's political it, dynamite. It seems politically unreal. So our conclusion is that it may well be alluring for Labour to think that it can manage a cut price nationalisation and not pay fair market value. But when they are briefed by the civil service, when they see what the political and legal consequence of that is, it seems to us very likely they will step back and they will proceed in the way that every previous UK government has when nationalising assets and pay fair market value compensation. So Dan, Let's imagine for a second that you're wrong. I know that's very difficult to um, imagine, but uh, let's say Labour tries try this. What what, what investors would be would be uh, impacted? So thinking about water for a second, the UK has a hundred or more bilateral investment treaties. Which treaties have significant pockets of investors? Well, Korea, Singapore, India, China, Hong Kong possibly Barbados. Those are probably the key ones. For energy, it's those again, but also the signatories to the Energy Charter Treaty, which there's several dozen, including every EU member except Italy. When you're looking in particular at the retail energy sector, energy, energy supply, over half of it is owned by, by European businesses. So you have a significant proportion of investors able to make a treaty claim. I don't think anyone's done the math and worked it out, but I would expect that for energy, it'll be between a quarter and a half. For water, it'll be a bit less than that. Now, let's just try and put this into a little bit of context, because it sounds quite dry, it sounds quite technical. But, to use the <coughs> politician's phrase, just to be clear, what countries have done this sort of thing? What countries have sought 
to take things into public ownership for less than market value. How's that gone? What sort of company would we be keeping? Well, not the UK. Of the 15 nationalisations to date, they have been for market value. Northern Rock, the legislation required market value compensation, required a value to work out what that would be. Spoiler alert, the value was zero. For previous UK nationalisations, there were formula, there were tribunals, various methods, some of which investors might not like, but all circling around the market value concept. Look further afield, look to Italy, look to Canada, look to France, which had the most ambitious nationalisation programme really in the West ever. 1981 nationalised the top half dozen or so French industrials, 20, 30 or more regional banks as well market value compensation was paid. We've tried quite hard, Philip, to find examples in the OECD of where there was a nationalisation without at least an attempt to pay market value compensation. We haven't come up with one. You have to look to the likes of Venezuela to find examples of a government deliberately setting out to pay to pay less than market. And in fact, even Venezuela, the first few nationalisations, they, they paid market value. It was only later on when things got a bit more difficult that they didn't. And because of that, if you look at BIT tribunal claims around expropriation, for the last few years, they've been dominated by claims against Venezuela. There have been a dozen or more, and Venezuela has not done well. So, so that is the unfortunate company the UK would be keeping. And it's probably worth making the point that that, that, that the wider geopolitical implications are another reason why legality and domestic politics aside, it would be unwise to try and price strip nationalisation. The UK has historically stood for maintenance of the rule of law, treating investors fairly. And for us to set a precedent of treating investors unfairly will bounce back on British investors invested abroad. We'll have wider implications that I think no British government would want. Because, of course, there are numerous investments that UK companies have made abroad. And many of those countries may very well argue that uh, what works for the goose works for the gander. And that's what happens when you start to undermine international rule of law, isn't it? Absolutely. And you can even have more immediate diplomatic um, implications. A number of the water companies are owned or part owned by sovereign wealth funds across the world. How, how are those governments going to react to their investments being taken for less than market? National Grid has a large number of US investors. How, how will the US government react? The Northern Ireland electrical grid is owned as to 95% by the Republic of Ireland. How's the Republic of Ireland going to proceed, particularly if the UK is in the middle of a difficult trade negotiation with the EU? Retail energy, EDF, is of course owned by the, the French government. So when you add the domestic politics, the pensioners, add that to the potential BIT claims by investors, add that to diplomacy. Sorry, I'm coming back to the point you wanted me to assume was wrong, but still, I find it very hard to believe that a government would choose to pick those fights. And it would have an economic impact on the UK in terms of foreign direct investment as well, wouldn't it? It would. You, it, If you start nationalising some businesses for less than market value, the question will be, what's next? And unless you can assure investors that that really was it and there really is nothing else to come, then investment in other sectors, one would think, would suffer. So that's been a look at one of the key objectives 
of a incoming Labour government. Now, they've got a very, as we said at the beginning, a very broad and comprehensive platform. And it may very well be that um, they find this a pretty difficult and challenging thing to do. But we've also established that, well, the people involved probably mean what they say and they will try and do it. Yeah, it, we would have a long, complex, fraught process, a clash between an ideological desire and the technocratic problems and challenges of implementation. A bit like Brexit, really. But unlike Brexit, once you, once you light the blue touch paper, you have no assurance of it happening. You have to actually make it happen. You have to have a bill. You have to get it through the Commons. You have to get it through the Lords. So it would be a tedious and likely long drawn out process. To, to accomplish the nationalisation of water within a year would be an incredible achievement. To nationalise two sectors in that time feel, feels to me likely impossible. All of that means that I would question whether Labour really would be able to nationalise all of their target sectors within the first term. They, they will need to pick priorities. Well, Dan, thank you very much. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, if you enjoyed that, you may be interested in listening to some of our other podcasts on cliffordchance.com or for more information on other business topics such as fintech, Brexit and global trade. Have a look at our thought leadership pages and online hubs, Talking Tech and our Brexit hub. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please stay tuned for more coming soon on cliffordchance.com.